Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Our hosts, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski, recorded this episode earlier in the month before COVID-19 had caused our reality to change so much. Rob and Victoria talked to Rudiger Albers, president of Wempy Jewelers, about his 30 years in the watch business. We'll be releasing some more timely content in the coming weeks. Rob and Victoria will be interviewing industry professionals to provide advice and tips to help retailers during this time of upheaval. In the meantime, we hope you find Rudy's story informative and a welcome distraction during this time. Be well and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. And this is Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online in New York City. And we have an in-the-studio guest. Yes, we've got our wonderful guest, Rudiger Albers, President of Wempy Jewelers on Fifth Avenue. We also, we all know him as Rudy. He's been there for 32 years, a real watch expert. I know I've quoted him numerous times in the past. We're thrilled to have him talk about watches, retail, and uh, what's happening with all the watch shows or not happening with the watch shows this spring. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you very much for having me here today. Really excited. I like this view from the studio. Quite amazing. Well, so you've been there for 32 years, and but you're from Germany originally, right? So tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got to New York City. So my uh, father was a watchmaker, and I decided I want to follow into his footsteps. And uh, at the time, everybody was saying, like, Rudy, uh, do you read the papers? Because, you know, quartz is here, mechanical watches are out, this is a dead end. Why would you even want to do it? But, you know, my parents had a store, and I felt like I want to, uh, you know, continue this legacy. And I did an apprenticeship for three years, which is quite intense at the time. Then I did a 15-month of military service and worked for my parents for a year and realized, gee, you know, this town is fairly small and I think I need something a little bit more exciting. And so I actually signed up for my master's class. And uh, during that time, my fellow classmates felt, you know what, there's an ad here for Wempy. They're looking for somebody for either New York or Paris. And I'm like, oh my God, that's me. And I sent in my application. I had an interview a couple of weeks later, just before Christmas. And before we knew it, I had a ticket to come to New York. What year was that? 1987. When you say your father was a watchmaker, did he do it as a custom thing or how? what did that entail at that time? Well, my father learned the craft when, you know, there was not much in material. He, w- he would have to make balances out of bicycle spokes, you know, wow. so he learned it really from uh, from the ground up and eventually opened up his own store together with my mom and they sold watches like in the lower price range. They sold silver spoons and silverware and, uh, and jewelry. And uh, yeah, I grew up under his bench basically. And then, so with all this background and knowledge, then you get to New York, it's 1987, but you weren't hired as president, correct? <laughs> no, not quite. So actually, I, I, they, um, they had me in... It's funny, actually, I like to tell this story because, you know, I got a letter after my interview like a week or so later, and I didn't open it for probably two hours, knowing that there was a plane ticket into New York. You know, I was just very confident that uh, I aced that interview, and plus, you know, my English was fairly decent, and, uh, you know, and I, I had the quest to conquer the world, so I guess Mr. Wimpy saw that in me, and there it was, the ticket. But I, I spent time in Germany, probably like nine months with the company, just to get a better understanding of all the different brands and the, the company itself. And then I came over as a uh, master watchmaker, supposed to sort of educate my coworkers from the complications of different watches so they could explain the benefits to the customers. Because at the time, Wemper New York was suffering loss after loss. Actually, we had a financial audit where the IRS basically thought nobody would be willing to lose that much money. That's just not somebody, but anybody do. But, you know, Mr. Wemper is a proud 
development and he felt like he didn't want to go that route. Some other competitors had left the market overnight and went back to Europe, but he didn't want to give up. And uh, so he felt he best to bring in the reinforcements, and I was one of them. So the store is, is where? The store is on 5th Avenue and 55th Street. And was it, has it always been there? Uh, it used to be on the other side of the street. That was like a two-story building where now the Valentino building is. And we, uh, you know, the lease was up. Mr. Wemper felt like, you know, let's go someplace where it's uh, landmark protected so we don't have to do this again. And that's how we conquered the corner of 5th Avenue, 55th Street, where the peninsula is right above us. And have you seen that neighborhood change a lot in the, I guess, 30 years, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first came, everybody was questioning, like, why would you go to New York? You know, it's lawless, it's dirty, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, at the time, literally, you wouldn't think of walking around Times Square during the daytime. And now you see people there with kids uh, at night. So it obviously has greatly improved. And Fifth Avenue, you know, goes through its ups and downs. Fifth Avenue is always Fifth Avenue. The traffic is amazing. I counted 30 million people a year that pass the store. Wow. So obviously, oh my goodness. we're yeah. like an inexpensive billboard for any brand. One thing I've always wondered is Lempi currently, you said, had 35 stores, right? But only the one in the U.S. How come they never expanded further into the U.S. market? Well, uh, there was a quote from Kim, and she said that, uh, unfortunately, she couldn't find a way to clone me. Now, <laughs> that it's true. Uh, nice. That's what she said. But, you know, we're a family-owned business. We had the opportunity to go to California, and when we're pretty much ready to um, to open a business there, we had the opportunity to buy our building in Paris, which was always really small, and the neighbors had not shown any interest of selling, and eventually they did. So we jumped on that, and uh, therefore we were able to expand our store there, and we didn't go to L.A. In the meantime, New York kept on growing and growing and growing. I should probably mention that at the beginning when um, I got the keys to the store, Mr. Wempe said to me, two more years, if it doesn't get any better, um, (laughs) we're going home. Wow. So multi-brand watch stores are, there's not that many of them, right? But you're starting to see more What you know, Turno is still around, watches of Switzerland. Do you still see that? Obviously, you still see that as a viable business. Do you think that more people are going to come in or or less people? Or No, well, I, right now you see a shrinking of the networks, and it seems to be also favored by the brands too, because the brands are very into the quality of how their watches are being presented, education of the staff display space, overall appearance of the store, you know, should have a luxury kind of environment. And uh, some of the bigger groups are able to provide that. And therefore, you do see a shrinking of that. But, you know, I definitely feel that we're viable. We just invested a good chunk of money in our Fifth Avenue store where we expanded in 2016 and have now probably one of the longest fronts on Fifth Avenue. If you take Bergdorf and Saks Fifth Avenue out of it, it definitely is the longest front. And um, that kind of exposure is certainly amazing. You have to go there at night. looks spectacular it really shines yeah, yeah. like a peak in there and how many how many brands do you how many watch brands i should say and tell us a little bit about the jewelry mix too right of course no we carry uh, 20 of the finest brands we have uh, large areas dedicated to rolex and patek philippe but then carry the finest brands like langan and vacheron and uh, breguet and we, uh, we have breitling and tech hoyer so we basically try to catch the customers also to buy the first watch with us or like a tudor for example um, and they grow with us you always hear you sp- Everyone's in this industry is talking about millennials. Do we appeal to millennials? Do you have kind of across the board as far as ages? Uh, do you think that millennials have the same passion for watches that perhaps some of the older generations do? I think it's something that it's uh, in part like an acquired taste. If you have, we have lots of customers that sort of take their kits with them during a purchase, and they get to see what makes a difference. Um, of course, everybody has like a, a smartwatch at home, and I'm always feel like oh, at least they're wearing something on the wrist, which at some point they probably get tired of, and they want to look something more individual. 
individual. And, uh, you know, besides from that, I mean, most of our customers own a smartwatch somewhere, you know, and right, our business wow. has grown over the years. So I think they can peacefully coexist and uh, it's not going to take the... Uh, and, and do you sell any smartwatches? Cause... Uh, we, we actually have Tacoya Mont Blanc as a smartwatch, yes. Are they doing okay? Or? Uh, they started off really, really well, you know, and now they are still there, but it's not a strong seller at the moment. <laughs> Well, so what other trends are you seeing? If so, you're saying smartwatches. I mean, I don't think people come to Wempy for their, you know, the biggest selection of smartwatches are obviously coming to you for Swiss pieces. What are you seeing that is attracting people these days or in 2020? What What's your sense of the most prominent trends? I mean, if people do come in with a smartwatch, I usually joke with them and say, like, how did you make it past security? But it's a, <laughs> it's a good, nice. good icebreaker. So we, we certainly uh, love anybody that comes into this store and just because they wear a smartwatch. I mean, they obviously come to us for a reason. And there's some thing to be said about the charm of a mechanical timepiece and so what do you have as a product that you know carries the uh, emotions uh, for such a long time period so there's something to be said of wanting to own the fine timepiece and and that still goes on we have a lot of customers that come in for graduation and or other important uh, events in their life like mother's day and a birth of a child or a promotion and they have it engraved we I, there was like a couple years ago we did a thing where we all wore smart watches I thought it was okay. I didn't really find much use of it. I mean, it's obviously there's plenty of people wearing them, so maybe they know something that I don't. But you know, actually, the thing that struck me was so I have I I haven't worn a watch in a long time because I have the phone and ouch yeah sorry about that but you know so. All of a sudden, I had a watch. I said, you know, it's really handy to have your time on your wrist. I mean, it really, it makes a difference. Yeah. Well, I oftentimes put on a wrist, uh, watch in the morning, and uh, I totally forget to set it. You know, I love the aesthetics of it. I mean, we, we should add this renaissance that began roughly in the late 80s, right, as you were joining right. in this mechanical watchmaking renaissance. So you were in step with this whole cultural shift where people started collecting watches and going to auction and as of 2019, Swiss exports were their highest ever. So not only is the Apple Watch outselling the entire Swiss industry, the Swiss industry is at its highest point ever. Of course, 2020 may signal a shift there, but you know it does speak to your point of these things coexisting. I mean, the, just because people are wearing smartwatches hasn't decimated the Swiss business in the slightest. Correct. Well, it's decimated the low-end business, I should say, not the luxury business. Right. In the time only kind of, if it watches purely just a functioning device, but you know, a, a, a higher end, well finished timepiece just uh, represents so much more than just the time. To me, you know, of all the jewelry products, there's consumer publications devoted to watches, which is is not, you know, there's not really consumer publications devoted to any other jewelry product. And it seems like the amount of collectors is actually growing. I mean, it, it seems like there's a very vibrant community out there. So what's the fascination for people? Obviously, I mean, it's a status symbol, but why do people People get so into this. First of all, you're absolutely right. And then these watch websites have certainly helped to excite customers and, and, and introduce or reintroduce them to the art of watchmaking. I mean, we have to be on our toes to keep up with them. And people also seem to get into the mechanics of it, how they move, the movements. Yeah, it's a fascination. And that's why most brands now have um, sapphire crystals as a case back, so you can actually see what makes them tick. And as you compare, you get to realize why one costs a little more than the other. You know, you keep hearing about the success of two brands in particular, Rolex and Patek Philippe. What is it about those two brands that has been so durable and so that they're still so hot right now? 
Yeah, it's really um, the demand has increased to an extent that I think nobody had expected. Certainly, those I think those companies even didn't even expect that that could happen to that extent, and they're working hard to increase production. But that's not an easy feat, since the demand is so amazingly large. Um, you know, same thing will happen that you won't see certain watches on display because the moment they come in, you know, we call the client and he's double parking Fifth Avenue five minutes later wow. to pick up the watch that he might have been waiting for, you know, months. A year, yes, depends on which one it is. Yeah. Well, I was just with a bunch of Tudor dealers yesterday, so we were talking about. They said that virtually any model, other than maybe the date, just people would walk in and say, "Can I have this one?" And they legitimately thought it was available, and the dealer would have to say, "I'm so sorry, but join this long, 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 long list." I mean, how often in a day or a week do you get someone walking in saying, "Hey, can I get that stainless steel Daytona?" Yes. I always say that the gray hair on my left side is from the, the request for the white dial and then the right side for the request for the black dial. So, <laughs> um, But the fact is that uh, the overall output on these watches is, you know, I mean, it's huge compared to what other companies make as a total production. But in terms of the demand, it just is never going to be enough. I mean, I think about Rolex as obviously the ultimate sport watch, but do you even see, does its Cellini side, the dress watch side, sell? Or, or? For us, it sells because I mean, a lot of people like the Rolex brand and they know it stands for quality. So and if you buy their, their strap watches or their Cellini line in this case, you know, inside it has the same great movement as in the other ones. It has a screwed on crown, so it's waterproof. Uh, and few watches that are on the dressy side don't have that kind of interior engineering that you can actually put them through the rigor like that, play golf with it, for example. And that, that's actually, you know, we talked about the watch websites, but I, but I think it's one of the interesting things that they're doing is that they're, they're taking people into the factories and they're showing how these things are made. And I think people are very impressed by that. You cannot be not impressed when you see that. I mean, unfortunately, some of the brands are just not able to host even our best customers sometimes. I mean, we try to get tours done, um, but I think the sheer interest would be so overwhelming they would probably have to have a, a separate building just for client entertainment. But to see it firsthand, um, we did trips with this was actually great. We, we took some customers to Lange and Zöhne, and uh, there was this watchmaker. He was polishing this uh, the bridge to, like, the highest extent possible, and he showed very proudly this little piece. And one of the wives of our customer says, yeah, but isn't this incredibly boring? <laughs> oh, and no. I, and I thought that this guy is going to jump up. Oh, instead, no. instead cry, cry. he said, but look how nice this turns out. You know, that's when she got it too. So yeah. the, the, the yeah. when you see it, and usually the the benefit is usually you know when um, when somebody starts collecting something, the significant others doesn't quite always appreciate why you would need another watch. Just like we sometimes question why you need another handbag. Uh, when you see what it takes to make it, that this is not just some item with a big price tag, but it, it's really there's people behind it that work. I think that that makes all the difference for people appreciating uh, the intricacies of watchmaking. This was probably a huge issue a couple of years ago, the gray market. Right. Is that still a big issue? Well, maybe. I'm sure there is. You know, as watches show up in places where th th they are sold for uh, for prices that we can't compete with, it happens. The question is, you know, uh, do you get the same? Is it authentic? Is it uh, a warranty that you can take to the manufacturer afterwards? You know, today you find genuine movements in fake watches. Usually it's the premium pieces. So I'm not wow. sure how they get a hand on their on the movement. Um, maybe it's a stolen watch. Maybe it's like a stainless steel watch, and then they create a premium sports model. And you know, some of them are so good 
Yeah. I was reading one story about counterfeit watches, and they said there was some counterfeits that were so good they even imitate the smell of the watch. That, that's <laughs> that... how granular. What's the smell of a watch? I've you know, never I guess even... they have a certain smell. Well, uh... I mean, new car smell I heard of. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you listen to your podcasts. And now, back to the show. One issue we're also seeing in the watch business is the secondhand market that a lot of people are getting into, and you run into some of the problems that you talked about, what is really authentic secondhand. How, do you think that's becoming a bigger part of the market, and how do you control that given all these issues? Well, I guess you have to make a decision who you want to give your trust to. You know, we uh, we certainly are looking into it. We so far have not found the right solution for it. We also don't feel that we want to mix pre-owned watches with new watches. I think that sends mixed messages to our customers. Um, so therefore, we uh, we're exploring what the right solution would be for us if that's something that we want to really good get into. So I, I'd also love to ask you just about. We obviously know that watches and wonders in Geneva and Basel World have been canceled, and we're just wondering. And we got that news last week at the tail end of February. How does that impact you or or does it really? I mean, is it crucial that you go to the Swiss fairs or can you continue get all the updates you need and buy all the collections you need to buy without going? Well, actually, this is my very first Basel that I'm missing. Yeah, so this was like outside of my control. So 32 Basels later, I always enjoy going because, uh, you know, you need to touch and feel the watch. Just seeing it in 3D, uh, sorry, on a, on a, on a computer, it's, uh, it's just not the same. But um, I think as an industry as a whole, it's sort of sad that it got so fragmented because, you know, it's, it's a relatively small industry. And I think once a year they need to really talk with a loud voice. And also the organizers need to think of it from a retail perspective. And now Basel's moved to January, at least, right. the next year. Yeah, great. Um, is that good, you think? I think it's great. I think it's great because like earlier, you know, it, it, in the past, it was almost like the second week in January. So you were barely survived physically the stress of the holiday season. I mean, that's like the Super Bowl for us, right? So we're like going nonstop. For this to now be at the end of January, I think it's ideal. And in a way, this I'm sure there's a big revenue loss, but maybe that this extra time, because they canceled it this year, may help them with this retooling, I guess? Yeah, more time gives you more time to plan. And and I think also for the, the, the organizers to realize this, like, this is how a year looks like without a fear. So, and this is a real threat. What if we lose this fair? What does this mean for the city of Basel and everybody else? And uh, I think that might help shape a future Basel that is just accommodating for everybody and they still have their fair. I mean, a lot of brands were not happy with this date because it's just too late in the year. Did it surprise you that there became this kind of big Basel revolt at one point or was it, was it kind of going that way or... You know what, as a retailer, you don't necessarily get to experience it from the brand perspective. I've never right. seen the bills uh, of yeah. what these things cost. At the same time, I, I you know, press has their own needs, and, and that is hard to appreciate as a retailer. Um, but I, I think they, they probably did not take that into account for a long time, and that's what happened. So it was, it was abrupt, maybe, but I'm sure it was long in the making, and somebody was just saying, enough. Good point. Well, Victoria, we haven't spoken about our jewelry yet. Oh, I know. Well, oh you know what? I, I brought it up and then it got <laughs> lost in the I, watch shuffle. Yes. I mean, it, 
Well, you're such a watch expert. I but am. That's you're a also passion. A, a jewelry person. Yeah. So you know, and it's it's funny because Wempe has mainly made ourselves a name for watches, especially in this country. But uh, you know, we we also do like special uh, creations. We have an atelier in Germany where we do our own line, and this year is the 20th anniversary of Kim Wempe doing her own jewelry. So we're very proud of that, and we'll be celebrating it accordingly. Um, we recently had Mariah Carey light up the Empire State Building for her 25th anniversary of her song All I Want for Christmas Is You and she was wearing a $500,000 necklace from us so that was wow. pretty cool Whoa. to see that in People Magazine and everywhere else. So speaking of celebrities, mm-hmm. uh, you get a lot. Do you have any cool stories you can share with us? Or We have some celebrities that come in occasionally and they're quite quite fun. You know, Sylvester Stallone is one of them and he loves to post for pictures with us and uh, you know sends a thank you video to my salesperson and you know it's quite entertaining great guy very down to earth Um, one story I remember an agency called me if their celebrity client could come and be taken to the side a little bit incognito so I cleaned my office desk and uh, two minutes later Robert De Niro was in my office (laughs) and uh, he wanted to inscribe a special message for a watch that he was purchasing and I said why don't you give it some thought because engraving is forever so whatever it is here's my cell phone number call me when you come up is the right phrase so I'm driving home and all of a sudden the phone rings and hey this is Bob and um, I was very tempted to say hey are you talking to me but you know, I'm sure he <laughs> heard that a million times so <laughs> I uh, I did not but you know, we, have, we have Fifth Avenue brings in a lot so we also created a um, a special room for our watch collectors and in there we have safes by Boomin and Zervik and Watchwinders and many of them are like James Bond inspired with smoke glass and uh, fingerprint recognition so if you're in the neighborhood and you want to see where you can store your watch collection safely wow. and aesthetically extremely pleasing ask to be let downstairs to that watch collector somewhere. how how far down is it uh, Many, many yards. Many, wow. <laughs> well, these things sound so rad that it's like, you you know, the mechanical watchmaker is, is alive and well when people are spending 300000 plus just to hold their watches. Yeah, it's, everything is relative at Wimpy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 